I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agricultural equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, hosing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Despite a short growing season, Peace Country in Alberta, Canada is one of the country's richest agricultural areas. Located near the Peace River, about 800 miles north of Spokane, Washington, it contains about a million acres of farmland and is home to most of Canada's farmed bison and honeybees. Jason Castleman has been farming in Peace Country for more than a decade and a half and says that though they have only 100 to 110 frost-free days in the growing season, the northern latitude means they get abundant sunlight, which helps them succeed with the wheat, canola, barley, and other crops customarily grown in the region. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Castleman to find out how they make no-till work so far north. Listen in as they discuss the benefits of controlled traffic, why he likes using a low-disturbance cross-lot drill, using grain bags to dry grain in winter instead of during harvest, how he goes about fixing yield-limiting low-pH soils, and much more. So Jason, you're located way up north in Alberta. In fact, I looked it up in, uh, on the map, and if I was in a car here in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin area and decided to drive to your place up at Fairview, Alberta, it would take me 30 hours and 1,935 miles. So I guess another option would be to fly into Edmond in Alberta and then drive up, what, maybe another four or five hours to your place? Yeah, you bet. We can actually fly into uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta. Uh-huh. So that's our that's kind of the major center here in what we call the Peace Country, that farming area along the Peace River Valley. So Grand Prairie, it's about a city of about sixty thousand people. So it's it's got a major airport, and and then um, we also kind of include the uh, the BC piece as well. So sure. Dawson Creek, Fort St. John, up there. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna we're gonna talk a little about reduced tillage and no tillage way north. But why don't you fill me in? You told me that uh, you grew up in Ontario. Is that right? Yes, I did. Tell me where and what kind of farming operation or whatever you were in, and then how did you end up in the Peace River area? So we grew up in in Stormont County, so just uh, outside of Cornwall, Ontario, along the uh, Saint Lawrence River, and uh, so Stormont County, uh, Dundas County, Glengarry County. They're uh, predominantly dairy country, and so a lot of uh, small mixed operations. And I had been working with uh, Ralph Dale Fertilizers. They were uh, an independent um, retail and had the opportunity to, after graduating from uh, McGill University, to work, come out west and work uh, 
for Cargill as the agronomy manager here in uh, in the peace country. I've done quite a bit of uh, agronomic consulting with uh, the, you know, some of the larger grain companies, and then I'm a partner in my own uh, ag retail that uh, ended up getting sold. And so we uh, bought some farmland and uh, have been farming as well as doing agronomic consulting uh, at the same time. So when you grew up along uh, the St. Lawrence, north of uh, Toronto, between there and Montreal, or where? Just east of Toronto, between Ottawa and Montreal, I guess, would, would narrow it down a little bit more. Okay, yeah. Well, actually, I grew up in uh, Michigan, north of Detroit, about 40 miles, but I actually have Canadian roots because my grandmother and grandfather homesteaded in uh, Alberta, south of Calgary, and then my actual grandfather passed away six weeks before my mother was born. So then they came back to a little town in Ontario called Rodney over by Chatham. Oh, yeah. And then uh, we ended up, they be, my grandmother became an American citizen, remarried, and uh, ended up in a little town called Lake Orion, which is 40 miles north of Detroit. So one of the things that's always fascinated me about the Peace River area is when we started our National No-Tillage Conference in 1993 in Indianapolis, there were two growers there from the Peace River area. And I'm ashamed to say I don't remember what their names were, but I got the feeling maybe they stopped in on their way to winter wonderland in Florida sometime. But uh, So tell me what's going on up in your area. There's some no-tillage, some reduced tillage, right? Yeah, so it is interesting. I've been up here. Uh, this will be our uh, our 16th year since we've moved up to uh, Fairview. You know, so it's a uh, it's pretty interesting area. There's still lots of uh, of the new frontier. We we have guys that are clearing land from bush and turning it into farmland. And so we have had the adoption of no-till practices. We have some limitations of moisture and also uh, kind of poor poor soils are. Soils are, depending on on what's happened, um, there were quite a quite a few big forest fires that had gone through and took out a lot of the uh, trees. So this would have been back in the in the 50s and 60s, before there was a lot of people up here. Sure. And so the first settlers were were doing some tillage and and trying to get that that land back into shape. But I think what no-till has done is helped us build back some of that organic matter and uh, give us more topsoil to work with. Now, when we think as far north as you are in Canada, we think of really cold temperatures, but is that true of the Peace River or are you down in there in a more moderate area? No, we can be pretty cold. The short growing season between frost-free days is, is definitely a challenge, but where we make up with it is on our northern latitude is we're able to capture a lot more sunlight Sure. In a day. So our, our hours of sunlight during the growing season are tremendous. So we, we would have sunrise at, um, you know, four o'clock in the morning and sunset at midnight. So we get, uh, we get abundant sunlight. And uh, so that really helps uh, progress the crops, you know, so for our crops, wheat, canola, peas, it, uh, the sunlight does make a big difference. So uh, what would your frost free days be? It depends, but we can be 100, 110 days frost-free. So we'll mm-hmm. we'll have frost right through to the almost uh, middle of May, and um, and then sometimes we've had frost uh, end of August. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I know what you're talking about with the sunlight. Years ago, I was uh, on a tour and we spent a Saturday night in Whitehorse. I wasn't sure that the sun ever went down in that town. It was in late June or early July. So what kind of winter temperatures will you get? It's pretty moderated. We we will get uh, a stretch there usually um, in minus 40. Uh, and uh, so that's that's pretty typical. But sometimes, whenever I look at the map, we're we're warmer here than than they are in southern Ontario. So <laughs> I think what happens is there is there is definitely a wind stream that follows the Rockies. We catch some of that, so we will get the odd Chinook wind that comes comes through and warms things up. But it's um, it it does get pretty cold through the winter time. Yeah. So when would you be uh, seeding in the spring? What dates would you have? We'll have guys usually plan for that uh, first week of May. Okay. Um, it is interesting. Sometimes we get um, a window in April where guys will uh, get seeding. Mm-hmm. And last year I had uh, one of the guys that I work with. He's just south of Grand Prairie, so about an hour and a half south of Fairview. And he seeded his canola in April. I think it was April the 24th. And he was able to harvest um, that dry canola on um in august so the august of 28th he was he was combining his canola that was running pretty good yield with uh with dry canola so it does work what kind of yields would you get on wheat and canola typical our wheat yields are running in the the, um, 50 55 bushels to the acre on hard red spring we have guys growing cps wheat and they'll typically be in the 75 to 80 bushels. And our canola yields in the piece are typically in that uh, 40 bushels to the acre range. Okay. Maybe you should explain for our listeners what CPS wheat is. Canadian prairie spring wheat. So it's one of the wheat classes here in in Canada. So hard red spring is going to be more of your baking type wheat with uh, higher protein. And then CPS uh, Canadian prairie spring wheat is not not a big factor as far as protein goes. Let's talk maybe about a typical no-tiller. If he's seeding one of these wheats in um, April or May, what kind of equipment would he have? So we've got uh, quite a range of guys, different equipment. What we have on our farm, we uh, are using disc drills. We've got one John Deere disc drill, and uh, the other one is actually a cross-lot disc drill. Oh, okay. So I work with my neighbor, who farms quite a bit more land than I do. He farms about 6,000 acres and, and I have about 600. And um, he he runs the uh, the cross lot disc drill and, uh, and then the John Deere 1895 disc drill. So, and also on a controlled traffic um, farming system. So 40 foot wide cedar, 40 foot wide combine headers and 120 foot wide uh, sprayer. sprayer. So we try to maintain those uh, traffic patterns on all the fields throughout the year. There are quite a few other systems, the uh, seed hawk system, as mm-hmm. well as the uh, Borgo feeders, but it's uh, there's a little bit of everything up here. Yeah, So and, they, and growers like yourselves will put down canola with the same rigs? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Peas, wheat, canola, and try to, try to make some adjustments, but that's always a challenge. Not every drill can do both. It's perfect. <laughs> right. 
So I'm kind of surprised to hear that the cross lot is up there. What uh, what enthused the, you and the other neighbor with cross lot? And uh, it you know it's down here in the states, but it hasn't caught on. It's uh, as much as everybody thought it was. A lot of people think it's pretty expensive. What made you people give it a shot? Oh, for sure. So my neighbor Murray, he's a fantastic uh, farmer and uh, does a lot of research and. Um, so one of the things that we could see with the cross lot in the minimum disturbance is how it could place seed and fertilizer without uh, having the hairpinning that we were getting sure. with the 1895. So having those that um, that seed trench and but also giving us that that uh, separation of fertilizer and seed with the with the, the option of, of low disturbance from the disc and. I think some of the, the other functionality of it, we have a liquid fertilizer system on it as well, which is kind of different from, from some of the other uh, farmers in the area. A lot of dry fertilizer up here for sure, mm-hmm. but um, trying to be able to do some, some of the practices to try and improve yields and get us a little bit benefits to the soil and, and with that uh, very low disturbance. Must take a lot of horsepower to pull these, doesn't it? Not really. Uh, with a 40-foot system, I'd have to check his numbers, but I know he's uh, he's running a, a John Deere uh, tractor. I think it's an 8630 on tracks, so mm-hmm. everything is is on tracks, and uh, so it, it's not. Uh, yeah, don't quote me on that number because I I think that's, oh, that's wrong. Okay. But he's right. but his uh, yeah he would be a you know 300 horsepower, 350 horsepower at the maximum for that uh, cross sure. lot, and then see pulling it at a at a fair speed to six mm-hmm. six miles an hour. I'm intrigued by your idea of controlled traffic. We talk about it down here in the States, but not a lot of people are doing it. What got him and the two of you involved in it? With the controlled traffic system, there's um, our soils are, are very sensitive to, to tillage and compaction. Hmm. So the idea is to concentrate that those, those tire tracks into uh, those tram lines and just not just not have wheel traffic on anything else in the field and we were able to prove that doing uh, especially with our our cart we d- weren't able to uh, have it set up to be able to run on the on the trams in the first mm-hmm. couple of years sure. and we could see every time that that cart went off track to pull up beside the combine to, to unload on the go mm-hmm. or to fill on the go and and we could see those tracks um, in in other years, or if there was a traffic that drove crosswise to the uh, to the tracks, we could see that showing up in the in the crop. So we knew that compaction was was hurting us. Our soils are very heavy clay, a lot of magnesium, and so they they are so unforgiving to to wheel traffic and and just being able to concentrate those 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 tracks into with the with the system really makes a difference. What are you using as a combine and, and a sprayer? Uh, both uh, John Deere, so he's got a uh, John Deere 680 and a John Deere 690, one with tracks and one with uh, with wheels. Mm-hmm. And then the, the sprayer is a, a John Deere uh, high-clearance sprayer with a 1,200-gallon tank. Sure. So once you get these crops harvested uh, on farm storage, local co-op, or where do you, how do you market them? Yeah, everything is on farm storage, and um, typically... Uh, a lot of it will get uh, put right into grain bags. So we use a lot of uh, temporary storage or grain bag storage in the field. Mm-hmm. And 
more or less to keep the combines running as as uh, much as possible without any uh, drying bottleneck. And then as the grain is um, sold or be, prior to being hauled to the elevator, run it through the dryer and uh, and then load the trucks uh, out of the dryer. So it gives us a chance to, to dry that grain in the winter season compared to uh, trying to do it at harvest time. So when you're bagging this, let's talk about wheat. When you're bagging this wheat, what kind of moisture would you have on the wheat? It will be tough wheat for sure. So we've gone up as high as 20% moisture mm-hmm. on that wheat. And any more than that, any it does get too hard to, to extract out of the bags. So yeah. it gets set up inside the bags. But you can do it up to 20% and, and it'll still come out. So as long as you uh, seal those bags properly, you can wait to winter to dry it down, right? That's right. What about canola? That's a little tougher handle, isn't it? Yeah. So same same idea. It'll go in. We'll, there's canola that'll uh, that'll get put into the bags at uh, at twelve percent, up to twelve percent, and again higher than that, and and we can see some issues with it sticking in the bag or not being able to extract it. And it depends on how long it's in there. I know we've had guys up here do canola off the combine into the bags when it was snowing, and it was uh, touching 20%, and they ha- weren't able to use the extractors, but they were using the front-end loaders and, and bucketing it out of the bags to uh, sure. put in trucks and then run it through the dryers. How big would these bags be? They'll be 12 foot across and 300 feet long. Right, that's kind Our of what typical it, ones that we have. Right, you can get them of, bigger, but yeah, kind of what we would be using down here for silage. Yep. Uh, what about peas? So peas are um, try to get them off the off field or off the combines as, um, but we will store them in the in the bags as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's sort of the same idea. If if it's tough, we'll still do it, but then and then work with it um, after uh, after harvest is over. Mm-hmm. Can a bagger in the field keep up with the combine? Yes. So typically what we'll do is have two combines and one grain cart. Okay. And so th- that, that cart will uh, take off of the combines and then the cart fills the uh, fills the bagger. Wow. So one guy can run the bagger and the cart and then a, a guy for each of the combines. And uh, once these are dried down, go to the elevator, how are they marketed? They go overseas or... Yeah, typically out of the peace country, um, most of the canola is, uh, I guess most of everything ends up going to Vancouver mm-hmm. or to uh, Prince Rupert. So it goes to the coast and then exported on, on ship. So it's uh, our rail system is set up to, to haul to, to go to the west. There is yeah. a little bit of grain that, out of the peace country that will get trucked to Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's the more domestic market. But Typically, out of the peace country, it's it's mostly an export market. So, tell me about the fertility program you would use on wheat. So, typically, if we're shooting for that 60, 60 bushel hard red spring wheat or the hundred mm-hmm. bushel CPS wheat, we're going to be running over a hundred pounds of actual nitrogen and thirty five pounds of phosphorus, and then potash removal, uh, twenty five thirty pounds, and then another fifteen to twenty pounds of sulfur. So, try to get everything on there. Sometimes we've been playing with uh, top dressing the uh, wheat with some melted urea. Mm -hmm. So we'll uh, melt the urea with water and make an aqueous solution 
and uh, do a foliar application on on that sometimes twice uh, once at growth stage 32 so pretty early and uh, and then sometimes later just as the uh, the head is emerging trying to to build some protein so played with that quite a bit with the controlled traffic system our tram lines are there so we you know don't have any issues of making extra tracks with the sprayer to to go back in and uh, and do some top dressing of fertilizer do you on these tram lines are they i mean you can see them but do you still use gps to get in the right spot or not yeah, for sure. We're using an RTK guidance system. So okay. at the farm, it, he's got a, um, a tower with a, with an RTK antenna on it that uh, can cover all of the farm. And then everything is repeatable every year to, to running on the same tracks. So at seeding time in April or May, you must have so much daylight you can practically seed 20 hours a day or so, right? <laughs> Typically, that's the idea is to you know, try to seed 24 hours and, and just go. So our seeding window does get to, can be pretty short. We can get the crop seeded in, in about a week uh-huh. uh, here wow. if, uh, if if things are in good shape. And that's right. one of the things I've noticed about the Peace Country for sure is the, the amount of equipment required for the number of acres that we farm is, is maybe a little bit more compared to some areas just because of the the time to get everything done is is pretty tight. Sure. Mm-hmm. So a little bit more field capacity based on the, the farm size of acres. Right. Well, that's changing all over, too. I mean, we used to plant corn here in the Midwest, and we'd take three weeks, and now everybody wants to get it done in seven days. That's right. Right. So we keep going the bigger and bigger equipment. What size uh, would be typical for, um, fields, big or small or everything? Uh, typically, we're... I guess quarter section is going to be your your standard size, but there's there's lots of fields that, that are being farmed as half sections or or even section fields. I'd say the average uh, farm size here is is going to be getting close to that uh, uh, 3,500 to 5,000 acres, and that's an operation that a family can can run on their own or one guy and a and a and a couple of hired guys. Yeah, fields flat or rolling or hilly or what? Typically, uh, pretty flat. There's okay. uh, there's some areas that have some rolling land when you get closer to the uh, to the river, but for where we are, it's pretty flat and probably a bit of a t- too flat for for some. Uh, we've got some drainage issues on on some of that flat land, trying to to get water to to get across it in the spring melt. But uh, there's there's super flat land, and and then there's a few. It, areas that have some some hills and topography. We'll rejoin Frank Lesseter and Jason Castleman in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agricultural equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L dot com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. In January of 
2022, less than a year from now, we'll be coming up on the uh, 30th anniversary of the National No-Tillage Conference. And someone asked me recently, well, what are some of the crazy things that have happened at the event over the years? And I remember a year in St. Louis, we had a no-till classroom speaker who talked for several minutes before deciding to advance the slides in his carousel slide tray. This was in the days before PowerPoint. And when he turned on the projector before the session got underway, he'd left a plastic cap on top of the carousel slide tray and the heat from the projector melted the plastic and ruined all 55 of the no-till slides he had planned to show. He completed his no-till presentation without being able to uh, share any of the visuals he had prepared for his talk. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lesseter and Jason Castleman. Fertilizer putting on, when and how do you put it on? I'd say most, you know, 90% is, is going to be a spring application at seeding time. There's still a few guys that do some in hydrus in the fall, but that's getting to be fewer and fewer acres. And mm-hmm. banding dry fertilizer in the fall, there's not really very little of that that goes on. And, and broadcasting, there's there's some, but it's it's not, you know, the capacity of the drills with some of these six and 800 bushel carts to, to hold a lot of fertilizer and and they can they can put on as much as they need at uh, at seeding time for the most sure. part so if you if you had a cart would it be uh two bins three bins or what uh typically there'll be uh at least three bins and and sometimes uh four hmm. i know the uh the big uh, the bigger carts the the 800 bushel or 1000 bushel carts will be four or five bins so uh, how many acres could you do without having to refill both seed and fertilizer? Guys are, are trying to get to that uh, quarter section. So 160 acres on a fill okay. right. is what, they, what, they're, what they're trying to get to. Maybe right. 200 acres if they, they split it up a little different. Mm-hmm. So are they all, all fertilizers going on in the spring? No more applications later in the growing season? Not typically. I know for, for what we're trying to do with some of that that. Uh, side dress nitrogen is is not very common there's there's very little of that it's it's all seeded it's all applied at seeding time for the most sure. part and uh-huh. what about uh weed control so typically we'll try to do a um, pre-seed burn off so tank mixing something with the uh, with our roundup uh, prior to seeding uh-huh. and then uh, within a day or two come into the field and seed it and then in, Pretty shortly after, within a couple of weeks, or uh, when that uh, crop is two to three leaf stage, uh, spray it again with uh, with an in crop spray. And and if it's canola, we'll have the option of spraying a two pass in crop. And um, but typically the wheat is is a mix. They'll spray a broadleaf product as well as a, as a grass herbicide for wild oats, uh, all in one mix at. Uh, later in the season so wild oats the big problem there or something else yeah wild oats is a is an issue for sure volunteer canola is uh, is right. always is always something to and i think that's uh, that's helped us stay ahead of i have a bit of a an idea that because we are always dealing with roundup ready volunteer canola in the field and having to do tank mixes um for us to see a a glyphosate resistant broadleaf weed is is not as big of a challenge because we're already dealing with with the volunteer canola hmm. management 
And uh, but I do think on the on the grass side, the wild oats, we have to be looking at some options as far as um, residual products in our pre-burn to uh, to stay ahead. We have you know definitely some areas where we've got group one and group two resistant uh, wild oats. So that's that's a challenge for some guys. Yeah. Uh, fungicides, any disease problems, or you got so much sunlight you don't have to worry about uh, dew leading to the disease problems? <laughs> well, typically in our in our canola fields, where we can walk out into the field at uh, at noon and still get your pants wet, and then we're we're wanting to do spray for uh, for white mold or sclerotinia. Okay. Last year was uh, was super wet. We we were getting a lot of rain in season, so we we're actually had quite a few airplanes that came up to the area to do some uh, some aerial application. Uh, some of these fields we couldn't get into with the sprayers because it was so much wet ground and the, and the airplanes did a really good job. Yeah. Uh, we are also, the peas get a, they're for sure, guys are always spraying peas with a fungicide and typically to help with standability and, and keep the fields clean for harvest time. What's land worth up there? Good, good farmland. Uh, the market's probably uh, in that. I'd say five hundred thousand a quarter is is what um, is what you know really good land would be going for. Um, you know, I think there's there's still some land that's that may be a little bit less than that. But uh, again, it's it's not. Uh, I guess our challenge, as far as you can you can get a lot of land. But our uh, access to to uh, the market is is our biggest challenge, and you know, guys hauling grain to the elevator. It's uh, there's a lot of miles between between the farm fields and the and the grain elevators. Mm-hmm. You've been up there. What did you tell me? Fifteen years. Yes. Would uh, when you first went up there was was no till already started, or did you get it started, or what happened? No, there was there was guys doing. Um, quite a bit of uh, no-till already. I, I think there was probably the biggest thing that I saw when I first got up here is the, um, um, they were doing a one-pass system with um, seeding, the older the older style uh, no-till seeding tools that were doing quite a bit of soil disturbance and it started changing to the more one-pass with very low disturbance. But I think one of the things that we've seen here in the last couple of years being you know, some challenging weather and and, and uh, moisture at seeding time is is a lot more guys trying to do some um, some field work ahead of the the seeding the the seeders. So they'll go in with carrows um, or or a high speed disc and and try to try to dry up the soil or try to fix some of the the issues that they had from the fall harvest where they had some rut or some some issues. So trying to trying to fix some of those problems with a little bit of tillage. So I've probably seen more more of that than I did uh, when I first got up here. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned high-speed disc, and that's kind of a specialty item that's kind of pros and cons with it the last couple of years, but some people are definitely using them, and you, it sounds like you got a place for it to get ruts out. Yeah, it does a great job on the ruts, and I think I see with the peas, because of their long vines and sometimes getting flattened down on the ground. So they'll combine the field, but not, not all of that, uh, that straw material gets 
chopped up through the combine. It's laying flat on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so for them to, to seed through it with a shank-type drill, they get quite a bit of bunching up or dragging or sticking. And so they'll go over that with the high-speed disc and chop it all up into small pieces and then and then seed through it. And it all flows through the, uh, the, the one-pass seeder. Yeah, I assume these crops are direct cut. They're not swathed. It's more and more is direct cut. I know okay. at our place we're 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 straight cutting everything: canola, wheat, and peas. Mm-hmm. But we still have the swather, and uh, so it depends. Sometimes the swather gets used on the canola, and uh, there was peas that got swathed. We've had we've had cereal crops get swathed. I know guys with with malt barley will. We'll swath malt barley sometimes. So yeah, the the swather hasn't hasn't gone away yet. So is your farm right at Fairview? No, it's in Cleardale. So Cleardale okay. is about a an hour and twenty west of uh, Fairview. So between Fairview and Fort St. John. Okay. One of the, one of the guys I've known or talked about a couple of times up there is Ken Duchamp. It's up at Manning. That's even farther north than where you are, right? Yeah, so Ken, Ken, I say Deccant, Ken Deccant uh, is in Manning, and uh, they're about an hour north north of Fairview from going, kind of going to the east uh, following the Peace River. Yeah, he's had some huge fields up there, I think, and they keep clearing more. Yeah, he's on the edge of the uh, of the bush, so he's got uh, he's got all the land. He if he wants to take the, take the trees out, there's there's if it'll grow poplar trees, it'll grow wheat and canola, I guess. Uh-huh. So where he's located, how far north would it be before you get to the end of Alberta? Oh, that's a good question. I I know there's there's still more farmland to go cuz from Manning if you keep going north, you can come up to uh Lacrete and high level and okay. there's a tremendous amount of farmland in in the uh in that area. Yeah. And so that's another 3-4 hours north of Fairview. Oh, okay. Right. So what made you decide to uh, leave Ontario and go up? I mean, you must have had some people think you were crazy or were going to the boondocks. <laughs> well, I guess it was, uh, it was interesting when we were showing my, my wife's father where we were moving on the on the uh, map of Canada, uh-huh. and he was looking around Edmonton, and, and I said, no, no, it's, it's up here. <laughs> he, was, he was pretty surprised. And to me... Uh, I originally had applied for a job in the Calgary area with sure. um, with one of the grain companies, and um, they were telling me about this opportunity up in the Peace Country, and so I thought I'd never be able, I'd never see it again. So I came up to to see it that same at that same time, and just thought it was uh, the land of opportunity. Yeah. There was um, a huge group of, or how would you say it? There's to me the the land base and and what what it takes to farm up here was to me uh, uh, a challenge that I was willing to to accept sure. and and want it to to be part of it. You get back to Ontario once in a while? Not very often. We've probably gone back um, three or four times in the in the last um, fifteen years. Mm-hmm. But we've uh, we've been up here. We've stayed pretty close to to Fairview. I assume you're not using cover crops. You got enough residue left in the fall to plant in in, in the spring. Yeah, it's to me the the cover crop idea is is interesting. So, and so where where we see 
some of that uh, come into and it's it's interesting so Gabe Brown was he's been up here sure. doing doing presentations and, and talks hmm. and uh, so but what his angle is or or what what the guys that he talks to are doing in the peace country is is the multi-species mixes but not strictly as a cover crop but as a as a forage crop so mm-hmm. as as cattle feed and so my other neighbors that have cattle beside me, they, they grow a, a mix, a multi-species mix of the vetch, clover, triticale, oats, wheat, um, clover, turnips, um, radishes, and they'll harvest that for, um, for, for cattle feed, either making uh, silage out of it or, um, or green feed. Yeah. And so, the, the the idea of the cover crop that you're growing it and, and just letting it letting it be ground cover doesn't really happen. It's there is an end use for that uh, for those crops. Right. And um, so we've actually this, this year because we were dealing with some uh, some issues. We, we were unseeded actually this year. We were so wet we couldn't get seeded. Mm-hmm. So we decided to um, to seed. 500 acres down to a uh, to a grass mix that um, we we got from Gabe Brown, uh, like a, a recommendation, not the seed, sure. but yeah. uh, a seed mix that he recommended that we put together of, of brome grass and orchard Timothy, a little bit of alfalfa and, and other grasses, and uh, so we've seeded 500 acres of that down, and our idea is to run some cows on on some of this land to uh, to give it more. Uh, opportunity from the cattle to to give it some more life and and then when we rotate it back into annual crops uh see the benefit of of doing that so that's definitely new for us is 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 getting cows on some of that land that's probably hasn't seen cows for 30 40 years <laughs> so when would you seed this uh we seeded it that uh on September long weekend okay. so we we had seeded it last uh at the end of August in uh uh, first week of September last year. Yeah, so you get quite a bit of growth on it before it was. It was green, like over. it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't real big, but it was definitely greened up, and mm-hmm. uh, and we've had we've had snow cover on it all winter. So, and we're still, you know, we still got a foot of snow in the field there today. So it's uh, it should be should be protected. When you plant this crop in September, are you, when when are you taking off the forage? Are you taking off in the spring and then planting another crop, or leaving it for a full year? No, we'll leave it. We'll leave it and and take a hay crop off it this year, probably, okay. and then uh, it'll be a perennial crop. So we'll we'll run cows or stalkers for the summer. So get them in uh, in May and then sell them in September. So they'll just be on grass for uh, for the summer. Right. And, so do you yeah. harvest any of that crop um, for winter feeding or not? No, it'll be it'll be grazed. Okay. Um, and the idea would be, you know, I think as we get into it is, um, uh, I think there's enough guys that have told us the benefits of the rotational grazing. So having smaller right. products mm-hmm. and and moving the animals frequently and, and having them on those smaller areas is good instead of having them all in one big 500 acre field. What's the biggest failure that you've seen in no-till in that area over the years? 
I'd say one of the things that has hurt guys is trying to trying to push our fertilizer rates with the seed placed fertilizer. So we know that crops like canola and, and wheat can remove tremendous amounts of fertilizer and trying to keep up with those removal rates. I've seen guys pushing that, that fertilizer rate in the seed row pretty high and, and costing them uh, a lot of a lot of plants and and really really hurting the crops. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's part of the challenge is trying to get enough as we as we improve our yields is to try to keep up with the, the crop removal rates of this fertilizer and and do it so that we're not hurting the the crop. Yeah. So whether it's um, you know putting it as a side band or in a mid row band or but not not pushing that fertilizer too high yeah. in the seed row. What uh, row widths would you have? It's either 10 inch or 12 inch. Yeah. Okay. So you got a little room to put fertilizer off to the side. What uh, new ideas you're going to see in no-till? I mean, Gabe's been up there. You're you're talking regenerative ag with livestock. Uh, what else is going to be coming up there? One of the things that we're really starting to see is the uh, uh, benefits of putting on uh, on lime. So okay. for that's a that's a huge uh, challenge I think we're starting to see is we're 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 starting to see fields that don't have near enough calcium and our pH of that uh, of those fields is is starting to really show that low pH is is limiting our crop potential mm-hmm. and so in a no-till system we we have access to to a, you know not a lot of different lime sources but we can get some lime yeah. at a cost and trying to get that applied either on this no-till land and see the benefit without having to do a whole bunch of tillage to to get it to work it into into that soil profile mm-hmm. so i think we're we're starting to see guys looking at uh, at how to apply lime or or get start to start to uh, fix that low ph problem that we're that's limiting our yields yeah and drainage too it's uh, alberta is is really against um, uh, farmers trying to do anything with their water so there's there's next to nothing for tile drainage uh, in in Alberta or and none in the piece mm-hmm. and uh, trying to get approvals for tile drainage is uh, is a huge undertaking it's um, it's just not uh, it's just not happening and I don't think that surface drainage is uh, should be a recommended way of managing some of this water I think Lime and, and tile is it has to be the next thing that uh, that we see here in the piece. Right, God, that's fascinating. Seems to me, it sounds to me like you got really progressive guys up there doing a lot of things that we don't get done down here in the states. You must just have to see the problem and get after it. <laughs> and that's the and that has been the way. You can't you can't afford to, uh, um, you know not try some new things if there is a, an economic benefit. And I, and I think that's, there's nobody that's really too much, too set in their ways to, to not try things that are. Yeah. And um, so it's, it, it is, it is a nice, a nice, you know, thing to see where, where guys will do some experimenting and, and actually I guess the experimenting was, was how we, you know, you talked about how did we come across the controlled traffic uh, system. And, right. and that was, 
that to me is is a platform that gives you the opportunity of doing on-farm trials and measuring not only in that in that one year but you can because you've you've maintained those tracks you can keep track of your of your your trials over a number of years hmm. because it is the same strip that you're farming every year i think there's um to, to me there's 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 always challenges in in anywhere but um you know what's what's kind of neat about farming here in the peace country is um there's there's always new things to learn new things to try and yeah. and uh, it get, we have a long enough winter we can think about all the things we want to try <laughs> in the springtime right you get a lot of snow we do sometimes and but it's interesting i'd say like right now um on the north side of the peace river we're we've got uh we've got lots of snow and then on the south side of the peace river they haven't had snow for for quite a quite a few months so this winter so it's um yeah it's it's a huge area we have about a million acres of canola in the piece mm-hmm. over a million acres of of wheat and probably another million acres split between peas oats and barley okay i was going to ask you if there are any other crops that are grown but i guess you just answered that and then you talked earlier about some of it was malting barley so yeah there's there's feed barley malting barley um there's uh, the peace country was known or has been known for uh, for being a forage seed production area. Sure. So I know there's there's a, still quite a bit of fescue um, that gets uh, that gets grown here in the peace country as well as other other um, uh, perennial grass seed crops for uh, um, for for some of the export markets. So I know still uh, there's guys growing perennial ryegrass uh, fescue. There's um, clover seed production, alfalfa seed production. So some of that is also part of the uh, part of the mix up here for guys. Yeah, uh, canola, GMO canola. Yes. So typically we're, you know, have been uh, split between um, the Liberty Link hybrids right. and the Roundup Ready hybrids, fifty-fifty, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and you know, but mostly mostly all GMO. There was some clear field, but very little. Um, the two, the two majority ones are the, are the Liberty link hybrids as well as the, in the roundup ready ones. And no GMO wheat. No, nothing. Nope. Right. What would happen if we got a ban or really had to cut back on glyphosate? To me, I think that's, um, that would, that would be a challenge for, for guys to, uh, to get around with, mm-hmm. with not having, uh, with, with not having Roundup. To me, I, I, unfortunately, I think it would bring back a lot more tillage. And so guys would end up using a lot more diesel fuel and, and yeah. doing a lot more tillage and, and causing a lot more environmental problems. Roundup has been a, a huge environmental benefit uh, to Western Canadian agriculture. And, and it's, uh, it's just unfortunate that it, you know, guys don't see it like that. Hey, this has been fantastic. I really loved it. I learned a lot today that I didn't know. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that was bagging wheat in the field at 20%. <laughs> but I really appreciate you doing this. It was fascinating. That's great. Thanks very much, Frank. Okay. Have a good day. Take care. Yep, you too. Okay, bye. 
Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener question. A reader recently asked me what are the ideal um, conditions for earthworms living in the no-till ground. And as you know, with no-till, we tend to get many more earthworms than we do with other tillage systems. And uh, Eileen Kovetko from Purdue University, who's kind of the earthworm authority, says that earthworms require an environment with lots of crop residue and a calcium-rich soil. They like shaded conditions such as would be provided by cover crops but they can tolerate a range of temperatures from freezing to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. They live in almost all soil types except very coarse soils such as sands and very acidic soils. So with no-till, you should have many thousands of earthworms in your fields. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Jason Kesselman for today's conversation, and thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakeurlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.